I know this is uh, very simple, but I couldn't uh, or didn't want to begin with a huge anatomy and physiology lesson of which I know very little about. But the minute your system senses stress, it releases a hormone that constricts the blood vessels, contracts the heart muscles, and stimulates the adrenal gland. And it's designed to get you from the stressful situation to a place beyond the stressful situation so that your body can come back and recover. Unfortunately, if the stress doesn't alleviate and if it continues, you end up living like this in a more chronic state. And for any considerable length of time, the, vessel, the vessels, our blood vessels, technically uh, the lining begins to actually shred. The heart stays permanently constricted. The intestines, the immune system will eventually begin to just shut down. I had breakfast with a very close friend that I hadn't seen in a while this week. And as a pastor over the past few months, it saw him, as all of us have, presiding over way too many funerals in a short amount of time. And just about Christmas Day, he woke up one morning and realized that he was in that state and that he felt that he was ready to walk away. Because at that time, the only way he could get out of that state that I just described was to walk away from the ministry because the ministry was too, too stressful. Thank God over three weeks that he was allowed to take off. And after three weeks, God came to him again. And it wasn't time for him to walk away. He's preaching today. I had lunch with our family that included the mom and the brother, my sister-in-law and my niece, uh, nephew, of the niece that we were praying for last year, Nellie's niece, Patty, who spent 90 days on a ventilator with her COVID. And by the way, she and everyone else in the family would like to thank you for your prayers. She's making progress, very slow, but she's still with us today. But in a crowd, in a lunch crowd that hadn't seen anybody in a while, in other words, family that came back together yesterday, which included my mother-in-law who's been staying with us, who hasn't been here in a long, long time, we all sat down and all of a sudden after about five minutes, we realized how unusually quiet we were, especially for this group. Maybe not for me, but especially this group. And I just pointed out, we're tired. We're exhausted. Exhaustion. This pandemic has produced this, I, I, I guess I would call it this underlying stress. It, it, it lays just beneath the surface. And whenever we think that it's gone away, right, all of a sudden something else happens again. And on top of that, all during this pandemic and all uh, that's been going on, has life been put on hold otherwise? No, we're still dealing every day with what? With what we would have dealt with had we not had this extra stress. 
Life has not gotten any easier just because we're in a pandemic. In other words, that underlying stress is just adding to where we are. So how many here are tired? Just me? Okay. I'm not gonna make you be tired. But we're exhausted. Our fractured conversations, the conversations that the pandemic brought about, our polarization, much more polarized than we were. We're not even having conversations that we had two and a half years ago because we can't have them anymore, can we? Not without somebody screaming and maybe throwing something and maybe never talking to each other again. That's where we are, aren't we? And this week, as Grady pointed out, we have war again on the other side of the planet, which creates an all new stress for us. Some of us here more than others as we think about what may happen and what isn't. So what would be the cure? What does everyone uh, seek today, if you will? What's one word that we're all looking for? Rest. The cure to exhaustion is what? Is rest. Real rest. So as we move on in our letter to the Hebrews, again, chapter four begins with this word. This word what? Therefore. Okay, therefore. And we'll get back to why it starts with therefore, but just, just start, start after therefore for just a minute. While the promise of entering his what? His rest is still open. Let us take care that none of you, how many? None of you should seem to have failed to reach it. How many people does God want in his rest? Everybody, everybody, right? So rest. Except for today, speaking of uh, for today, was there ever another time where a people needed this message more than us. How about after 400 years of slavery? The daily minute by minute torture. The consistent nature of waking up without your destiny in your control. That's what it means to be a slave. To be at the whim of whoever your master is which by the way, fundamentally goes against what we were created to be and who we are, amen? Are we slaves? Are we born slaves? No, we are free, but for 400 years, God's people woke up every day at the hands of a cruel taskmaster and did not, had no control over their destiny whatsoever. 10 generations, 400 years, Pregnant women in birth having their babies thrown into the second largest river of the world. Living like this from day to day for 400 years. Can you think of another people that needs rest more than they do? And any of people throughout history who finds themselves in the same situation because unfortunately, they weren't the last people to be enslaved. They will not be the last. They weren't the first, they will not be the last all the way up until today. 
So that's why it begins with therefore, because we ended last week with this. It says, so we see that they were unable to enter, and the verses before it say rest, because of their what? God goes to Egypt, he liberates them, he brings them into the wilderness and offers them what? Rest. But they fail to enter it because of what? Unbelief. What was it they didn't believe? They didn't believe that this God's presence offered rest. He offered to bring them up into his presence. They said no. Their fear superseded their need for rest. They said, this God seems to be angry, just like every other God we just left behind in Egypt. No, thank you. Moses, you go talk to him. In other words, out of all of us, who's the only one that gets rest? Moses. You know, in today, in today, just what I was describing, I don't think that I could uh, uh, offer you any comfort or anything that you really need if I would tell you, okay, I will take two naps today. Mel, one is for you, okay? <laughs> Moses can't offer on behalf of God to the people what? Rest. He wanted them all to have it. Moses then has a freedom that they don't have. See, they place themselves in the care of this intermediary, this intercessor, who, by the way, cannot have the relationship that God is seeking for them, and they place themselves in there. Think about this. They've traded Egypt's slavery for this slavery. You with me? They may be out from under Pharaoh's thumb, but now whose thumb are they underneath? an enslavement to a relationship that cannot give rest. He can only speak for and to Moses. Moses can't do it for them. He can't do it for you or for me. So they're enslaved to a new system, if you will. This system that needs an intercessor. So we pick up in verse two, it says, for indeed the good news came to us just as to them, so the author of Hebrews is wanting these modern, uh, when I say modern, I'm talking about at the time that this letter was written, you with me, okay? And we make the modern spiritual application to us, but I'm just saying that at the time that he writes this, he says, this message came to us today, about 60 AD, if you will, by the time that the, the author writes this letter to Hebrews, today it came to us also, just as it did to who? just as it did to them. But the message they heard did not what? It didn't benefit them. Because they were not united by what? By faith. Notice it wasn't the message that failed. God offered rest. He said when you hear the trumpet, come up the mountain. He offered it. It wasn't the message that failed. It was their what? It was their faith. They didn't believe he offered rest. Without faith. So their ears did not unite, their faith ears did not unite with their ear ears. The message did not find its locale, if you will. It didn't find its destination. Because it has to be heard through ears of what? 
of faith. It was their faith that failed them. Without faith, God's promise of rest doesn't find its way to them actually being able to experience it because they don't believe him. They don't believe them. Sinai was a revelation to be feared according to their human ears. It was a reason to fear him. For we who have believed, what? See, if you have faith, again, change the English word, but simply if he'd said, for we who have faith, have what? Entered the rest. Notice, past tense, done. If you have faith, you have entered the rest. If you believe that God can give you rest, then you have entered it. Just as God said, as in my anger, I swore they shall not enter my rest, though his works were what? Were finished at the foundation of the world. They believed he was angry. And he hints at something else, though. He hints at uh, your anger is something, my anger, he says, is something that you hear. Remember I told you last week that he's quoting from Psalm 95? The author has gone back to Psalm 95. He's quoting him again. As in my anger I swore, talking to those people in Israel, those who would not uh, hear God with faith, but would rather listen to his anger, at least what they're hearing, But then he adds this, he says, though his works were finished at the foundation of the world. He's hinting at something else, isn't he? He's hinting at another kind of rest. Finished works? When did God finish his works? On which day of creation? On the sixth day. Because then he says, for in one place, He speaks about the seventh day as follows. God rested on the seventh day from what? From all his works. So what's the one one place that the author of Hebrews is now quoting from? Genesis, right? On the sixth day he completed. And again in this place, he says they shall not what? They shall not enter his rest. So Psalms says that he was angry after Sinai, but God brings up creation and the first Sabbath. In other words, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that the anger that they sensed at Sinai doesn't have to be the way you hear God today. Because he goes on to say, since therefore it remains open, for what? For some to enter it. These modern Hebrews that are listening to this letter, he's telling them, you don't have to suffer the fate of your fathers in the wilderness. They believed that God was angry with them. They believed that rest was not something that was being given. They did not have what? They did not have faith. These modern ones, these modern Hebrews are saying, you can have it. The rest remains what? Open. Open. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Disobedience is put right up there with lack of what? Lack of faith. Disobedience simply is a lack of faith. It's a lack of trust, is what he's saying. See, it brings it to now, just as uh, it was represented to those newly freed slaves. The rest remains open for some. Open when? Open how long? 
Well, the letter, again, is being written to people that are listening to it in their day. And so he says, again, he sets a certain what? A certain day. Today, and then he quotes David much later in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So when is the day that the rest is open? Today. Now, he says, And I'm going back to David, and his plea with them is his plea to you now. Do not what? Don't harden your hearts. Listen. Listen. Former slaves didn't believe, although he offered them rest. He believed he was, they, that he was as angry as the gods of Egypt, but David says for you, when? Today. Today. Not just uh, uh, those, after those 40 years in the land that was given, but when? Then he goes on to say, because if Joshua had given them rest, God would not speak about what? Another day. See, the thing is, is that those, those people that believed that God was angry who would not enter his rest because they did not believe, would not enter his rest because of their faith, they died in the wilderness, didn't they? Who was it that got to go to the promised land? Their children. See, and their children are living in the land under the same premise, under the same threat. And so we might be tempted to say, well, the kids got to go because the parents didn't believe. The author of Hebrews says, that's not the rest I'm talking about. Because of Joshua giving them the land, remember, it's Joshua that takes them into the promised land, not Moses. It's, the, it's Joshua that divides up the land, b- defeats the first enemies, divides up the land, all, all of that. It's Joshua that does that. Joshua didn't offer them rest, is what he's saying. Not the rest I'm talking about here. So like I said, we're tempted. We're tempted to say, well, it was the kids that didn't disobey, so they get what? They get rest. Author of Hebrews says, that's not the rest I'm talking about. I'm talking about today, he says. 60 AD, 1,000 years later. The rest wasn't just for those next generations who got to go into the promised land. Because let me ask you this. Over the next 1,000 years, as you read and know and study Israel's history, did they get rest If you do think that, I'll introduce you to the book of Judges, the book of 1st and 2nd Samuel, the book of 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, the pre-exilic prophets, the exiles themselves. Israel's history is anything but what? Rest. And it's anything but peace, isn't it? There isn't anything about it. And to me, as you read along that, I began to notice, you know, starting this series, I began to notice something that I never noticed before, and maybe no one else notices as we're reading it, okay? What is one thing that that thousand years, or that by the first, all the way up to the first century, have have, have in common, if you will. What is the one thing 
that let's say the ancestors of those who died in the wilderness all the way up to the first century, what is the one thing that they have in common? They're still trying to live that relationship with God. They're still trying to live that intermediary relationship. The reason that they were hauled into exile is because they still relate to God through this system, through the temple system, if you will. They're not getting what? They're not getting rest. And obviously the system is not satisfactory. So remember the book of Hebrews begins with that which is not satisfactory. It's good, but it's not the best. It's good, but it's not what I want. Long ago, God spoke to us through prophets. And sometimes he even speaks to us through angels. But today, he has spoken to us through his son. See, it's good, it's not bad. But actually, I'm getting to the point of saying, no, it is bad. (laughs) Because it isn't what he wanted. And Israel keeps going back to it. Let me ask you this. If the system itself, if the tabernacle, if the temple system gave rest, do you think they would find uh, a reason to be worshiping other gods? To be idolatrous? See, to me, that's what I read when I read Israel's history. The one thing that they have in common with those that died in the wilderness is the temple, the tabernacle, the system. They have the same relationship with God that they did then, except that the tent is a building. And instead of Moses and Aaron at the helm, by the first century, they've got some sort of distant relations who are no better than political appointees. Annas and Caiaphas aren't supposed to be both high priests according to the law. It's because they were appoint- the family was appointed by Rome. And as long as Annas and Caiaphas' family stay in political uh, favor with Rome, they will continue to be high priests. The priesthood was corrupt, literally absolutely corrupt by the first century. Which is why the author of Hebrews is telling them that God has to continue his promise. So then, he says, a Sabbath rest still remains for the people of God. We as Adventists should be amening that, right? Especially since he brought in a new word. What's the new word that he brought in? Sabbath. Which, by the way, if he's speaking in Hebrew or Aramaic, it's the same word. Sabbath means what? It means rest. So you could go back in chapter four and just everywhere where it says rest, just introduce Sabbath. Just exchange it for Sabbath. Because Shabbat is rest, period. That's what it is. For those who enter God's rest also cease from their labors as God did. Amen? Let us therefore make every effort to what? To enter the rest so that no one may fall through such disobedience as theirs. Have faith. God has a rest. When? Today. It's ours. Today. There is a rest available as pure as the very first unfallen Sabbath. Uh Uh-oh. I thought we had that, right? When I first was introduced to the Adventist church, you told me that the Sabbath, the Saturday, was the true rest. 
Is it as pure as the first Sabbath on the, uh, of the unfallen world? In other words, that first day, that very first Sabbath, is, in, is your rest that pure today? No, but it can be. It is available to us. And not because we know which day it is. And not because we're keeping a commandment no one else keeps. Not that reason. But it is available. When? Today. See, there's something to ponder. Even though we ruined it, even though we ruined it, and we cast this Sabbath, we cast Sabbath rest into a slave labor, if you will. We begin following God according to the commandment and not according to his rest, not according to his grace. So we enter into this, this relationship again. Uh, even though we ruined it at all costs, God still looks at it or looks to it as pure rest. He still comes to us offering his rest, not ours. It's his. And how is it found, if you will? How is it found? Well, we think we know what verse 12 is saying when he says, indeed, the word of God, the word of God, where do you find it? You find it in the word of God, he's saying. It is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before him, no creature is what? No creatures hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. So the word comes to us on two levels. One, it was spoken from Sinai. Remember that? It was spoken from Sinai first. And then, he, after that, he actually then wrote it down, didn't he? So it comes to us on two levels. By the way, where do we get the fourth commandment? He spoke it and he wrote it. So Moses brings it down from the mountain. And by the way, in, in relating to that word, where has it gotten them? Cowering at the foot of the mountain, constant disobedience and obedience to degrees in the wilderness, and when they do violate it, they have nowhere to go with it. Are you with me? The word, the fourth commandment, does it bring them rest? No, because the fourth commandment only shows us how not to violate it, but doesn't show us what to do when it's violated. You with me? The word on paper, the word on the tablet, the word spoken to a distant people only condemns. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's exactly right. He's exactly right in the word on this level. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. There is no expert butcher as sharp as the word of God. I want to know exactly who I am. I place myself up against the fourth commandment. Anybody here ever kept a Sabbath perfectly? And what has that commandment done to you after you failed to keep it perfectly? Has it laid you bare? Has it laid you naked before the judgment of God? Every sundown, doesn't it? So that's exactly what he's saying. The law is how much good after you violated it. It's just a constant reminder of who I am. It's got nothing for me. But God said, I've got something for you. I've got rest for you. 
before he, ever, before he was ever going to write it down or anything like that, he offered them to come up the mountain. He spoke it to them and said, you wanna, you wanna know more about this? You wanna know more about it? Come on up the mountain. Let's begin to walk and talk. Let's have a relationship. And they refused it. They refused it. So he offers a relationship with them that he says will give them rest they, uh, they opt for a system instead of the relationship to try to do something about it. See, last week we learned there was no mechanism to do anything with their sin, amen? When they woke up the morning after the golden calf, was there anything they could do? That was Moses' words to him, wasn't it? You guys, you know what? There's nothing we can do here. Thousands of people have died. Nobody's resting. Nobody's blessed. They all feel what? They all feel condemned, and they should be, right? So there was no mechanism. There was nothing in place. They had violated the first, second, and third commandments. They had nowhere to go. There was nothing they could do. So I guess then you could argue that after Moses goes back up the mountain and brings down the instructions for the tabernacle, that the system then is designed to do something. The thing was, it hadn't been built yet, though. It wasn't working yet. Moses received the prescription while he was up there. And what's ironic is the whole thing was, was that he was up there receiving the prescription of something they could do with their sin. And what were they doing? They were sinning. So when he comes back down, he's got nothing for them. And it's a perfect illustration. Why was it that he smashed the tablets? I don't think it was just because he was angry. He was angry and it was the only thing he was holding. But there's a perfect metaphor there. He smashed them because the tablets could do nothing for them now. Absolutely nothing. And so it is with the law. But is this thing, this system, is that what they're going to put their rest in, if you will? What about sin as handled, handled by the tabernacle? I know this might be 101 for more experienced uh, Adventists, but we'll, we'll take a look at this. And there's a reason why I chose this drawing, because it's simple, I, and I wanna, I wanna begin to get away from looking at the fully decorated tabernacle, and I'll explain that as, as, we, as we go on. Tabernacle is divided into how many courts? How many sections? Three, right? You have the courtyard, you have the holy place, and you have the most holy place. Okay, anyone else uh, allowed to enter the courtyard but the priests? No. So unless you're a priest, you're on the outside of this looking in, which by the way is what you asked for. You, Shanae, that's what you asked for at the foot of Sinai. You go talk to him, right? So only the priests get to, get to operate in this. So in the outer court, you have two pieces of furniture. You have a brazen altar, a, a, an altar of, of bronze, if you will, and you have a laver, of, uh, a laver of water. All burnt offering sacrifices go on that, if you will. When you sinned, and I'm only gonna concentrate on one, the guilt offering or the sin offering. When you sinned, you brought your offering to the door, if you will, the gateway to the door, and there's a little... Uh, 
uh, hiccup, I guess, with the language. Either the priest took it and sacrificed it, or you had to sacrifice it. We're not 100% sure, because the language isn't absolutely clear. But it is clear that something has to die for your what? For your sin. I'm going to quote saying you. For our sin. I'm at the door, too, okay? I'm at the door. For our sin. And was your sin immediately forgiven then? In a sense, yes. Because when, when, when it was sacrificed, whether it was you sacrificing it, uh, uh, whether it was us sacrificing it, or whether it was the priest sacrificing it, you had to put your hands on it beforehand and pronounce or confess your sin. So once it was sacrificed, blood was spilled, the blood was taken, thrown up against the altar, and in that process right there, your sin was taken and transferred to the sanctuary. I like to call the tabernacle a big sin dumpster because that's what it was. It was a dumpster. The blood is the truck. It takes sin and transfers it. So that happened every day. We'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, but that isn't the only burnt offering that goes on there. The beautiful thing is that there was an always an offering burning on that altar, a daily offering, one in the morning, one in the evening. There was always an offering being offered. We should amen that. Inside the most holy place, you have the only light in all the temple. I know you could say the fire under the altar, but the fire under the altar is under, it's down below. The menorah was the only light in all the temple. You have the table of showbread up against the other wall, which every week the priests put new loaves of bread on there, and by the way, they were allowed to eat it. They get to partake in this bread every week. It was theirs. And then you have the altar of incense which every morning after tending to both, if, if, it was, if it was Sabbath, then you would have to tend to the menorah and change the bread. If it's not Sabbath, you would start by tending to the menorah, trim the, the, the wicks, make sure that all the lamps are lighted again, and then you would go to the altar of incense. You take a pan, you go out, you get ashes, uh, you get coals from the altar outside, you bring it in, you put it on the altar of incense, and then you take this handful of incense and put it over the the coals. The cloud, it said, would waft up over the veil, it would come down on the other side of the veil, and it would settle where? It would settle on the ark, which takes us to the most holy place. Only one piece of furniture in the most holy place, the ark of the covenant. There's only one place where God promised that he would dwell in this tabernacle, and where is it? It's in that place. Right there, he says. And if you look, if you look at a side view of the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim and everything else, it does kind of look like a seat. It looks like a throne. It looks like somebody could sit on it and even have a back. So that's the system daily. This is what happens. This is what goes on daily. What's inside the Ark, by the way? The commandments, right? By the way, the broken ones, the smashed ones? Nope, the brand new ones, right? Brand new. Broken ones aren't anywhere in sight. But there are two other reminders of the wilderness. A jar of manna 
and Aaron's rod, if you will. So there is a reminder of the wilderness. There's a reminder of the disobedience that they did not enter into the rest that God offered back then. There is kind of a reminder, but the beautiful thing is, is that the lid is over the reminder. The mercy seat is on top, sitting over the reminder, if you will. So, this happens every day for a year. And then, on, then every, every, every year, there's something else that goes on. There's one more thing. After a whole year of sin being transferred and stored, the sanctuary then was cleansed of all the sin that was stored. High priest would take a sacrifice all the way into the most holy place. The one time a year that anybody is allowed in the presence of God, if you will, right into the most holy place, and he would offer the blood, and he would cleanse the sanctuary from the inside out. And when he was done, Israel was then pronounced, we're good for a year. That's not bad, is it? That's not too bad. So this is the system that Israel opts for. Does it sound like a thriving, intimate relationship? No. Does it sound like a thriving, intimate relationship for the one person who got it? Not really, he's only allowed in there once a year. And by the way, the law doesn't allow him to say anything. He just sprinkles blood onto the ark seven times and then backs out. But he is the one person that's allowed in there. See, remember, God offered a relationship to everybody. Israel opts for the system. There's only one guy that gets the relationship. And it's who? The high priest. The high priest. And because of the Day of Atonement, I'll say this, and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll get a little bit more afterwards, but because of the Day of Atonement, it's the high priest that makes this thing go. Without the high priest... At the best, at the very best, without the high priest, your sins remain in the dumpster. Right there, around the corner, right there in the neighborhood. Doesn't sound like, doesn't sound like we could trust God if he says, I won't remember your sins, when all we have to do is look over there and I know that that sin is sitting in that dumpster. You with me? So for Israel to be completely atoned or cleansed for their sin every year, they need who? They need the high priest. They have to have him. See, and this was all given them in the wilderness. He even makes it portable so he can go with him. Remember, he promised Moses that I will go with you. He promised that. He said, that's why I made this thing portable. But I can't help but notice that he gets shoved in the closet sitting on top of an ice chest, the smallest of all. What statement is he making about the intimacy Israel desires versus the intimacy that he desires? So do you give them rest with it? The tabernacle travels with him all through the wilderness. Did they get rest in the wilderness? Author of Hebrews says what? No. Did they get rest even on Sabbath? Numbers 15 begins with a description 
of what we would call supplemental offerings. I talked to you about the sin offering or the guilt offering, and then also the offering offered on the Day of Atonement. I talked about those three, okay? But there are tons and tons of other offerings that could have been offered in the tabernacle. So uh, Numbers 15 begins with this description of supplemental offerings. There are grain offerings, special vows, free will offerings, uh, drink offerings, wave offerings. All of these could be offered, but in the middle, In the middle of talking about those offerings, he brings the conversation back around to sin offerings. And he says there are two types of sin offerings. Sin that all Israel commits and sin that an individual commits. So there are, there is a possibility where all of Israel could have committed it. They already have, haven't they? The golden calf was committed by who? Everyone. Everyone but two, but it was still all. It was, re- it was requiring that they all be forgiven, amen? That's what Moses went up to do that day. Let me go up and talk to him. Let me go up and ask so that Israel may forgive your sin, for God may forgive your sin, Israel. He's speaking of everyone. So there are offerings that could be offered if they were ever to fail or uh, ever to sin like that again. But in Numbers 15, in verse 22, when he begins to talk about those offerings, he introduces a new word. In fact, it was only used once in Leviticus, and when you're reading in Leviticus, like sometimes happened with me, anybody ever read Leviticus and just kind of skip over three or four chapters? I spent, I spent this week trying to eat breakfast talking about skin lesions and, and, and what's clean and unclean, okay? So it's, you could have missed this. You could have missed this in reading in Leviticus. He only used it once, but it's a new word. But if you what? unintentionally fail to observe all these commandments that the Lord has spoken to Moses. Offering only covers a sin that was what? Unintentionally committed. The whole system, the whole system designed, the whole system that I just described (laughs) <laughs> and I'm sweating and hyperventilating because I'm just afraid that I left something out because I've talked about the sanctuary and the system so many times that I really didn't have a lot of notes for it. And I get detached from my notes and my heart starts to flutter. Okay, I get detached from you know, my notes. But I'm just saying that this entire system that has me hyperventilating, if you sin by mistake, sorry, it doesn't cut it. If you sin unwittingly, unknowingly. I'm sorry, there's no help in the Hebrew here. That's exactly what that word means. It's exactly what that word means. So in fact, the whole chapter then concludes after he says that, after he says, if, if, if you, as long as, if all of Israel commits sin unknowingly, there's an offering to be offered. A bull could be offered, which is real telling because the bull is the one offering that the high priest offers on the day of atonement for himself and his family. That's really, really cool. But anyway, I don't have time for that. But it had to be what? Knowingly? Unknowingly. And then it says there's an offering then that can be made if a man, if a person, one person commits one of these sins, breaks one of these commandments. But after the offering, they then tell this story. They again tell this story. The whole chapter concludes with a story that there is a man who is gathering sticks on the Sabbath and he's caught. They arrest him. They literally arrest him. They take him into custody in order to take to Moses and to Aaron. 
That's how this whole unintentional chapter concludes. And guess what? God comes and tells Moses and Aaron that the man who knowingly broke the commandment has to what? He has to die. That's how the chapter ends. With them taking this man out and stoning him to death. At the command of Moses and Aaron. Aaron being what? What's his job now? He's high priest. Again, the Sabbath commandment, as it's read, number four, it only allows for what? It only allows for pointing out what you did not do and nothing for what happens when you do violate it. The tabernacle, which is supposed to offer forgiveness, atonement, and cleansing, has nothing for a willful breaking of the commandment. That is unbelievable that the tabernacle is no better than a civil or criminal law in the United States in 2022. How many here have ever believed or heard that you could commit a crime and get off because you didn't know that it was against the law? Ignorance of the law is what kind of excuse? No excuse. Sorry, officer, I didn't know the speed limit was 35 here. That never worked with me. Does it work with you? No. Because chances are we saw a sign and we what? We ignored it, which means we broke the law what? Willingly. The tabernacle doesn't even cover what civil or criminal law in modern day America covers. And the supposed human intercessors, the one guy that has the almost face-to-face relationship with God, he's got a face-to-back relationship with God. And the other one who's high priest right now has only a face-to-foot relationship with God. Remember, he's only seen his feet, okay? They've got nothing for him. The high priest does not stand up and say, wait a minute, Father, wait a minute. Why, why can't he bring his offering to the, I'll, 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 go to the, I'll go to the tabernacle right now. I'll go to the tabernacle right now. Why can't he bring an offering for violating the Sabbath? And then, of course, next year, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll cleanse that. He can't say it because in his heart, he just doesn't fathom it. The tabernacle doesn't what? It doesn't cover it because it was willful. So hang in there with me. Got a few more, few more minutes. Just hang, there. hang on for a few more minutes. What's the problem here? The problems are humans. The problems are people. See, the system requires people. It requires human intercessors in order to be able to have human relationships with a divine God, and it just doesn't work. By the way, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say this and I'm not gonna explain it. If you want to, we can debate it later, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you this. Humans don't sin unintentionally. You with me? To me, that's an absurd claim that the tabernacle will only, only, if you will, only cover uh, intentional sin, but I wanna tell you this. Humans don't sin unintentionally. We sin intentionally. That's why a human can't relate to this system. We sin by nature. We sin by getting up in the morning. 
We sin by doing things that we know we shouldn't do. We sin by not doing things we know we should do, according to Romans 7. Romans 7, Paul is saying that he sins intentionally every day. I know what's right, but I don't what? I don't do it. I know what's wrong, but I don't don't do it. So this whole system isn't designed for humans, fallen humans. It's designed for somebody, well, it's designed for somebody who really believes that they, when they sin, it's unintentional. Oops. Like I said, sometimes we confess sin like we tripped going up the stairs in a dark basement. Forgive me, O oh Lord, for my sin. I'm sorry that I was so angry, but if you knew Grady the way I do. Right, ma'am? Humans don't sin unintentionally. This system wasn't designed for human interaction. It's the bad news. Hebrews has good news for us. Since then, we, want, we have a great high priest who's passed through the, what? The heavens. Not the little closet that only forgives unintentional sin. Not the little closet that requires the blood of an animal. But he's passed through where? He's passed through the actual sanctuary of God, where God is actually on his throne. He's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and true will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That includes the unintentional, the intentional. Why? Because he's a real human. He's the son of man and the son of God. The only thing that makes the sanctuary human is him. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to what? To sympathize. We don't have one that's unable to sympathize. Moses and Aaron could not sympathize with that guy. They couldn't sympathize because in their minds, he sinned intentionally. So there was no pleading. There was no empathizing. There was nothing. God's got nothing for you. I'm sorry. The law says you have to die. They're bound by this subordinate relationship to God. They don't have a face-to-face -face relationship. They're not walking and talking with him. Israel's relying on them to do it. And Moses has gone as far as he can go. He said, I speak with Moses face-to-face, -face, but it really isn't true, is it? He speaks to Moses back-to-face. Why? Because this high priest hadn't come yet. This high priest couldn't take him through the sanctuary in heaven. But ever since that day, when he pronounced the words, it is finished, we don't have to settle for anything less, according to Hebrews. Nothing less. There isn't anything less. There isn't good and great. There's great, and then there's nothing else. 
See, with our great high priest, that's what we get. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He understands it. And by the way, he doesn't have to have sinned or have a sinful nature in order to do it. We believe he's human because he says he is. We believe he's human because we know he was born of a woman. He doesn't need a sinful nature in order to do this for us. As a matter of fact, if he had a sinful nature, he couldn't do this for us. You with me? When the Son of God does this, it cleanses everything. We have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. If he had a sinful nature, probably the best he could do was be up against the Father's back. By the way, to me, that's what's insidious about the heresy of not believing that Jesus is divine, that he was created. It gets him no closer to the Father than Moses. Was Elijah in heaven and Enoch in heaven because they had never sinned? No. They were in heaven because God said, come on up. Was Moses in heaven because he never sinned? Come on up. Pass through the heavens. Why? Because my son has. My son will. And my son will continue to be this great high priest. He will be where the tabernacle and everything else in humanity falls short. We don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize, to sympathize. I believe him because I sin like a real human and I need superhuman forgiveness and atonement and he gives it. He makes sure of it. See, hope's not found in the sanctuary. Adventism's use of the sanctuary is backwards. <laughs> we go to the sanctuary to try to explain atonement. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe the story of atonement is right there in the sanctuary. But we, we, we tend to think that if we can figure out the sanctuary, then we figure out him. No, no, no. We know him, so now we can go back and figure out the sanctuary. Knowing all that, he has one more thing for you today, the author of Hebrews. Let us, what? Therefore, because of everything that I've said, let us therefore approach the throne of grace with what? With boldness so that we may receive and find grace in a time of need. Let us approach. Take a look at this again. Because he came and he accomplished all of this, everything that the tabernacle teaches, I can put it this way. I can understand it this way. I look at the outer court and I see all sin being uh, offered, if you will, on the outer court. I bring my sin offering and it gets transferred to the sanctuary. Every day, though, even the sins that, that, that I, I fail to actually have a sacrifice for, there is still a daily sacrifice burning on there. The priest comes in. And one thing that I left out because it's not furniture technically, but the one thing that he does when he goes in is he puts a robe on, a robe that uh, all white linen that covers him all the way down to his wrists, covers him to the tops of his feet, covers him right up to here, completely covered, completely clothed. He baptizes himself every day in the laver of water and then offers the daily offering and then begins to go to work transferring sin to the sanctuary. 
in the outer court, you, me, because of the great high priest, we are perfectly atoned for. And it gives us the entire steps that we take when we know that we're atoned for. What happens to us when we realize that we can have our sins forgiven? What happens to us when we realize that the Son of God will do it for us? We scream at the top of our lungs, I want to be baptized. And then after you're baptized, after you come up out of the water, then there's every day that happens. What happens every day? Priest walks into the next one. What do I find in the next one? I find the light. I find the light of the world. I find the word of God living and on paper being offered to me every day. Guidance, me, him coming to me every day through his word. Amen? I find my daily bread. Give us this day our what? Our daily bread. Spiritual and what? And physical. And when, I, and when I'm filled with that, I want to praise him or I, I have a request of him, then I walk over to the, the altar and I pray. I pray in whose name? I pray in Jesus' name, who stands there with his sweet incense, making sure that my prayers reach the Father completely cleansed. So if I'm perfectly atoned for in this courtyard, and in this one I'm perfectly interceded for every minute of every day, then why am I waiting on the outside? What are we waiting for? Pull back the veil. And walk in. Good morning, Father. How are you today? Being torn apart by the condemnation that sin brings. Israel was. And they had nothing for it. The tabernacle was a promise to them that someday, someday it'll be perfect because of this great high priest. He's the one. He is God's last day radiance. I'll conclude here, I know. Thank you for holding on, but I'll conclude here. Grady, you, you began reading to us <clears throat> Jesus coming to the churches. This is, this is just a little while after he had sat down at the right hand of God, after making purification for sin, according to what Hebrews says, right? After he had made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Well, John is then given this re revelation that he now walks amongst the lampstands. He is the messenger for the church. He's dressed in white. He has a golden sash around his waist or around his chest. It depends on how you read it. Guess who he's dressed as? He's dressed as a high priest. He has a sword. And it's not a sword that is actually going to dice me up with the condemnation of his word. Because what it is, is that it's not a broad sword. It's not a weapon. It's not a weapon that maims or kills. It's a short sword. It's a dagger. It's what a priest would use in order to make a sacrifice. And he walks into the churches and he says, every day, and, and, and when you get to Laodicea, you, uh, when, when, when you guys get all the way to that time in Laodicea, when, when people are beginning to measure the sanctuary again, according to Revelation 10, that's us, remember? 
after the disappointment, we were supposed to go back and measure the sanctuary, talk about the temple. This is why the temple and the sanctuary is so ingrained in, in Adventist theology. He says, so even, even then, even Laodicea, I want you to remember this, that you're gonna study it, you're gonna study it and study it, but always remember, always remember, it's incomplete. You walk and talk with the living sanctuary. You walk and talk with the perfect high priest. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. I hold the keys to life and to death. In the last days, this high priest, he is God's full radiance. He makes the tabernacle complete. Not the other way around. We don't learn more about Jesus from the tabernacle. We learn more about the tabernacle because of Jesus. Amen? So thank you for holding on again. Thank you for the extra time today.